welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing Podcast. This podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders. I'm delighted to welcome you to this IOD Centre for Corporate Governance podcast. And I have here with me today, Chris Hodge, who is Senior Advisor to the Centre. Hello, Chris. Hi, Roger. Very pleased to be with you. Um, Today, we're going to talk about a new report, which has just been published by the Centre on innovation and governance. And I think this is a rather timely moment for us to be discussing innovation Um, The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, recently said that innovation was to be the primary focus of his government. So I think everyone agrees that innovation is incredibly important uh, to a business system and to an economy. Um, But Chris, you began working on this project some months ago. Um, Why did you choose innovation as a topic and specifically to look at the relationship between innovation and governance, which some might might say is quite an unlikely pairing. Thanks, Roger. Yes, the the, the reason we decided to do this, we have an advisory board at the centre who uh, we we call on to get ideas for areas to focus on. And and they very much felt, as the Prime Minister does, that innovation is the key to growth and prosperity, all the more so given the circumstances, economic and, and environmental circumstances and challenges that we're we're facing at the moment, and uh, we very much share the view that he expressed that this is, is what I think he used the phrase, firing up the innovation engine is something that needs to be to be done. Um, the UK's track record in this area is is rather mixed. We have we've got a good track record of so-called breakthrough innovation, you know, radical new ideas and technologies, very good at coming up with them, less good at capitalising on them, and also with what's called incremental innovation, which is the innovation that individual companies do to improve their own business processes or products or services. Again, our track record is is, is not impressive. If something like 20% of, of UK SMEs have improved their business processes in the last three years compared to over 40% of their, their European counterparts so far. Uh, and government research shows that the number of what they define as innovation active businesses in the UK has declined over the last 10 years. So clearly there's a need to try and push on in that area. Um, As you said, it's not perhaps the most immediate aspect of how to increase innovation and governance, but I think the view we we took and that we wanted to test out in this report is that while there are many other factors that influence a company's ability and willingness to innovation, access to capital, skills, appropriate business support and so on, the presence and the absence of those resources doesn't on its own explain why some companies succeed in being innovative and others don't. And the proposition we wanted to test out is that the way in which the company is governed must have some impact on its ability or willingness to innovate. Yes. I mean, some of the people listening to this podcast may feel that governance is all about compliance, rules and regulations, bureaucracy, all these kinds of types of behaviours which some might say get in the way of innovation, get in the way of having 
a, you know, a very experimental and free-thinking approach, which which ultimately will result in innovation. Um, so I just wonder, what were your key findings in terms of how um, governments might influence innovation? I mean, I think what you the, the way you've expressed it, I think, is something that we've heard from larger, um, heavily regulated companies. But it, what we found is it the relationship between governments and innovation does rather depend on the size of the company, uh, the nature of the innovation you're undertaking, and the sort of maturity and where you are in the life cycle. Uh, obviously, we were keen uh, in this report to look at a more the range of companies, uh, as I say, both those responsible for the so-called breakthrough innovation, which are a relatively small number, but also other companies that would be looking to innovate in their own terms and not wanting to focus the entire discussion on, on listed companies, which has often been the case where this has been discussed in, in the past. I mean, what we found was that, as I say, the, the life cycle and the company size uh, does have an impact on the relationship. But what we heard from startups and, and smaller companies was actually, in some ways, the absence of governance can be a barrier. If you don't have um, structures that take the ideas to enable them to develop a framework within which they can work if you don't have perhaps board members or advisors who have skills and, and, and contacts that the company itself doesn't have. Sometimes there's this uh, there's a need for at least a basic level of, of formal governance there seems to help. Whereas for larger, particularly listed companies, and, 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 and as you say, um, I think the problem may be that the governance has become too focused on compliance and risk avoidance at the expense of supporting innovation and, and, and the forward-looking aspects of the work. Uh, as I say, I think it also then depends on the category of the, the and the type of, of innovation. Things like the organisational structure that supports innovation may be very different if you're looking to have or looking to, to bring about breakthrough innovations than if it's something that is... Uh, incremental and a case of improving the, the processes and services and products you already have. I mean, do you generate any advice um, from this report for directors in terms of how they can go about fostering innovation, how they can create a, an innovative business culture within their organisations and within the internal governance of their organisations? Is, is there any specific advice which, which you're able to offer? Well, this report we just published sets out the findings of, of the review, and I'll, I'll talk about some of those and how they're relevant to, to how boards might think about their own companies. But we will be following it up with some guidance for directors. and We may also be publishing some interesting case studies of companies that we've spoken to who have found good ways of using governance to support rather than constrain innovation. Um, in terms of the way we've structured the the report, and which I hope will be you know, useful to companies in its own right, even before we publish the guidance, is we've identified what we think are four characteristics that seem to be common to innovative businesses of all sizes, you know, regardless of the the life cycle or the sector there or the nature of innovation. Um, some of them may seem self-evident um, or common sense, and I think they a lot of them are, but what we also were told is they're not commonly in place, so we thought it was worth spelling them out. Uh, the first is really comes down to the attitude and, and, and insights from the board. If the board doesn't appreciate the importance of innovation to the company's business model, its future strategy, and, and, and 
uh, ability to generate sustainable value, then almost by definition, the company will not be innovative. So you need that mindset in place to start with. Secondly, what we were told is that innovation needs to be seen as a means to an end. That's not to say that there shouldn't be speculative innovation. You know, obviously, that's a very important part of the the overall picture. Um, but the message was that the technology and the ideas and so on are invaluable inputs, but it's the outcomes that will determine whether the innovation has been successful. And so if you don't have some sort of objective, however loosely framed, uh, before you start the innovation, it's very difficult to know whether you're achieving it, measuring your progress and so on. Uh, and and the idea that if the technology is good, something will happen doesn't always follow through, as I think our experience shows. Um, the third issue, and this is the one where it's probably most, how you do this is most dependent on the size of the company and the, the nature of the innovation you're doing is finding the right way of integrating innovation into the overall activities of, of the company. Um, for breakthrough innovations, the, the radical innovation that I mentioned, you know, there's often a case for ring fencing that to start with to make sure it gets properly resourced and, and so on. But, uh, but at a certain point in the process, companies need to move from the development stage to the delivery stage, and that's where it, the rest of the organization needs to be geared up to support and, and implement those innovations. Uh, and then finally, we heard the point that you've already made, the importance of having a supportive and conducive culture. Uh, and that goes throughout the organisation. So that brings you on to aspects of governance, like setting values, uh, how you design performance uh, and, and reward systems and so on. So those are the main um, attributes that we identified. The next bit of the report goes into some of the specific areas of of governance that we think underpin some of those. I mean, some of them will be obvious from from what I've already said, I think. Yes. That, that one aspect of governance, which is often mentioned in respect of innovation, is the ownership structure of, of an organisation. So the shareholder structure. You know, Do you have a big shareholder with a concentrated equity stake in your company? Or do you have a company with hundreds, if not thousands, mm. of small shareholders? Did you find that to be um, an influence over innovation in your in your study? Yes, we we did. I mean, the it's one, again one of those areas where the, the relationship between the exact relationship between ownership and the impact on governance very much depends on the size and ownership structure, as you've said. Um, I think there were two areas that that really came out. One was in relation to small, highly innovative companies, tech companies, others, and their ability to, to scale up uh, and attract capital to do that. And the other was right at the other end of the scale with, with large listed companies. And the, the two messages that we, we heard consistently, and, and invest, some investors listening to this may challenge these perceptions, was that um, at the listed end of the market, there there are many shareholders who have a, what, they, what companies see as a short-term approach the more interest in getting dividends and funding investing in innovation and, and so on uh, and that this has been a, a, a had an adverse impact on on companies ability and, and willingness to innovate uh, and we've seen some changes made to the listing rules for example that are, are, are following Lord Hill's review of the listing regime that are meant to alleviate that I mean I think a lot of the institutional investors we've spoken to for this project and, and in other things would 
would push back at some of that and point out that they are increasingly thinking of long-term factors, um, capital allocation that are increasingly part of their agenda as much as companies. But but nonetheless, uh, that perception is still there. Uh, and I think even investors would say they ha- they don't explicitly talk about innovation when they have their engagement with, with companies. Um, so that's an issue that, 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 that is, has been around for a while and, and still needs a bit of focus, I think. Interestingly, the, the other aspect, as I said, was right at the other end of the, the scale where, again, there is a perception that is that the availability of, of so-called patient capital uh, is an issue for um, for these small companies and particularly the high-tech and innovative companies. And we heard a lot of contrast between what is seen as happening in the US with the likes of Silicon Valley or other, where it seems to be much uh, much more access to that sort of capital, for, for, for in particular for tech companies. Now, again, the, the a lot of the reasons for that may be structural ones. You know, the capacity of of UK funds to actually fund so-called uh, you know, long-term patient capital and, and maybe lower than the larger funds in the US, for example. But again, at least one of the views that we we heard quite positionally is that there's a lack of an understanding on the part of many UK private equity and venture capital funds as to the value of innovation of the the nature of the business they're investing in um, and uh, and so though again I'm not sure we have we, well we don't have any solutions offered to either of those problems in the report we, we merely sort of note them but I think it does it does highlight that to the extent that you're in an ability to you have an ability to do that companies should try and ensure that the, the the values and ambitions and timescales of their owners are aligned with with their own. Now, that's obviously not straightforward in either of the cases that I've, I've mentioned, but um, it's something that ought to be on the agenda for discussion, but with current and potential owners. Uh, yes. And um, if the government is wanting to influence and encourage innovation, then obviously one of its key levers is the regulatory framework. And just thinking about the the, the UK regulatory framework in terms of corporate governance. I mean, we have quite a well-developed structure. Mm. You know, we have the UK corporate governance code. We have listing rules, company law, um, and so on. I mean, was the feeling amongst the people that you interviewed and in, in, in this report that that kind of frame, framework, that regulatory framework around corporate governance was actually playing a positive role or perhaps a negative role in terms of encouraging innovation? Yeah, it's an interesting question. We looked at uh, there's a number of different aspects to the, the interaction between regulation and, and and innovation, and some of them are uh, more to do with how it can be used to stimulate innovation, the actions that can be taken by regulators, uh, and there are actually quite a, a lot of good things being done at the moment. I can't comment on how effectively they're they're being done, but a number of regulators have these so-called sandboxes which uh, enable innovative new products and services to be tested on the market without having to go through the full regulatory process, for example. Um, Offwat has their own innovation fund where they actually invest in in innovative um, processes and technologies that might help them, their industry. So there's, there's that side of things. As far as the regulatory part of the role, though, I think there are, there are two issues. The one which uh, has been highlighted, and I, and I think, judging by the Prime Minister's remarks uh, the other week, have been taken on board, is that in the design of public policy and specific regulations, 
uh, obviously regulators will go through things like a cost-benefit analysis and the impact assessments in preparing those, but very little attention has paid to the impact on innovation as opposed to other equally important things like product safety, customer safety, whatever it may, may be. Um, there was a report pushed out, and actually came out a couple of weeks after we, uh, we issued our first discussion paper. Um, so that was very timely by a, a, a government-sponsored group called the Regulatory Horizons Council that has been looking at exactly this issue. And they've published quite a, a, a detailed report on the different ways in which regulators and policymakers should rethink uh, their their decision-making processes and how they go about designing regulation to be more supportive and conducive for innovation. Uh, so in our report, we welcome their recommendations and we very much hope that they will be implemented as quickly as possible. And certainly the, the Prime Minister talked about it being a, an innovation-friendly regulatory regime. So fingers crossed that, uh, you know, we see that come through. As far as regulation and codes specifically relating to to uh, governance is concerned, there were some that came up a bit. Um, I think there were there were no real comments on things like the corporate governance code in itself as being a barrier. The concern was more linked to, um, in the case of listed companies, the, the attitude of shareholders that I'd already touched on. And, and there was a feeling that you will have heard, Roger, in your many conversations on this subject, that while the FRC may set out the idea that this is a complier, explained, flexible approach to the governance and principles-based, in practice, uh, the feeling is that it actually it acts as more of a set of rules. So that in that sense, it has had some constraints on the ability to you know, design your board composition, for example, in a way that you feel would be uh, more conducive. But that wasn't the main the main issue. Uh, the main issue that we heard was that there's the cumulative burden of regulation, not specifically governance regulation, but all, all types of regulation. A means that the board is spending an excessive amount of time on compliance. Um, you know, whether you call that governance or, or not, it's essentially spending a lot of time on compliance, which is squeezing out the time and making it less focused on things like strategy and innovation and all things the company needs to do to actually generate value. Uh, but also, and this was the perhaps a more sort of interesting and nuanced point is the fact that boards, many boards now see compliance and oversight as the main part of their role, um, influences the selection of directors, particularly independent non-executive directors. Um, and that has this um, perhaps unseen effect of then influencing the mindset of the board going forward. You know, if you have the majority of people on the board are there because they they understand oversight, understand some of the risks or, or compliance issues that the company has to deal with, rather than because they are innovative or independent-minded or, or so on. But then going back to what I was saying about the characteristics, the, the likelihood of that board having the necessary appreciation and understanding of innovation is is reduced. Yeah. So I think that was seen as, as perhaps the least obvious, but the most insidious um, impact of regulation as far as innovation goes, rather than specific rules or codes. Well, that, well, that is a, a very interesting point, Chris. And um, it is indeed concerning, I think, if, if we are seeing boards getting locked into, as it were, a cycle of 
um, not so much anti-innovative um, behavior and mindset, but one which isn't really fostering innovation. Yes, I think that's, the way, really that's the way I would describe it, Roger. Sorry for interrupting yeah. there. Um, yes. But I think that's right. It's not they don't set out to be against innovation. It's just that's not what's at the front and front and centre of their thinking when they're sitting around the board table. Yeah. Yes. And what interestingly was one of the, we did a survey of IOD members as, as part of the the inquiry, and we had a fantastic response. Over seven hundred replied to the to the survey, which I'm told is is one of the best responses ever, and we're very appreciative to members of that. But one of the questions we asked was. How often does your board discuss innovation? And it was a very mixed picture. Encouragingly, a third of the respondents said we discuss innovation at every every meeting. But 20% of them said we discuss it once a year at most, you know, and, and some said never. So I think there that perhaps shows you the, the difference of approach or mindset, if you like. There are those boards who are clearly seen as an important part of the agenda important part of their responsibilities and make sure that they, it's discussed regularly. Others, as I say, it features once a year or or, or not at all. So. so so Chris, we have the report now, um, and I really hope that listeners will 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 take a close look at it. Um, what next? What what do we plan to do in the future around this topic of, of governance and innovation? Well as I as I said, we're planning to do some some guidance. Our, Thinking of the form of that is still at an early stage, so I, I won't say too much now um, because of the, the reasons I've discussed, you know, the, the sheer range in terms of size, type of innovation, maturity of the company and so on, that we're addressing that to. It won't be too prescriptive. Um, it may well be in the form of you know, issues that boards should consider, or questions to ask management about innovation, those, that sort of thing. Uh, and we'll also be, be looking for some case studies to add to the ones that we've already identified. So if anyone listening to this would like to contribute to either of those by suggesting case studies, having ideas about what we should address in the guidance, uh, we would be very keen to hear from you. We've had a lot of really useful inputs and inquiries so far, and, and I'm sure there are many more out there. So if you're listening to this and you, you'd like to help, uh, please drop me a line at Governance Advisor, all one word, and advisor spelt with an E, not an O, at iod.com, um, and it would be great to hear from you. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm, I'm really delighted that we have focused on, on this particular topic for, for, for this year's um, special IOD Centre for Corporate Governance report. Um, I think most of us would agree that you know innovation is is key to solving so many of our current problems. Whether we're talking about the the weak levels of productivity growth that we see here in the UK, um, whether we're thinking about how we make the transition to a to a green economy, to a to a low carbon economy, actually a reality. Innovation really is at the heart of this, and I think. The special perspective that the IOD can bring to this topic is, is really this interrelationship between governance and innovation, uh, which which is absolutely part of the puzzle. So, Chris, thank you very much uh, for your time today and uh, thank you for listening. Thanks very much, Roger. Thank you, everyone. We hope that you have enjoyed this Director's Briefing podcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts. You can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. 
You can also contact us directly via policy-unit at iod.com. Thank you.